Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers Show, we answer some listener questions. All right. But first, what are you working on? Well, right now, I am working on a series of very short, short pieces. So short, in fact, that you may not recognize that they're happening at all. <laughs> Flash fiction, like the idea. It's blink fiction. Through, blink fiction. Yes. <laughs> the idea goes it, through your mind. Yes. And you don't capture it. Right. And That's a kind of an artistic practice. It's a new thing, and it goes on the back of eyelids. So It's kind of an installation. It but is. It, but right now, it's only on the back of your eyelids. Right, right. So that's what I'm working on. How about yourself? <laughs> well, um, having plunged into my new... Uh, my new novel um, and having then set myself the the sort of NaNoWriMo form of 1667 a day. Now, I, I've been doing that. What is sort of the plus and minus about NaNoWriMo is you have a month to write 50,000 words, which averages to 1667 a day, but you can get behind and catch up and get behind and catch up. So that's sort of what I've been doing, mm -hmm. which means that some days I've been writing like 3,000 words. Um, but that's what I've been doing. And it's fun. And I'm trying to make things happen as well as dwell in the interior of my characters' minds, which is what I most easily do. That sounds fantastic. Doesn't it? It does. <laughs> All right. So lay it on me. Today's listener question... All right. The listener writes, I was listening. Oh, the, the subject of the email is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And the listener writes, I was listening to your podcast and you mentioned this idea. I wondered how you taught it. I know about it from Marxism. Thank you. So first I will say that I know about it from my grandmother, um, who it was... More of a Stalinist. Well, so. you, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Because oh, it's weirder. It is. It is. There's many things strange about my family, but but she actually talked about it in terms of playwriting. And um, John Lawson wrote this sort of old big book about playwriting and dialectics, and mm -hmm. she, I guess, dated him. And apparently, according to her, taught him everything he knew from which he wrote the book. So. Um, so she liked to talk about dialectics, and that was sort of my initial knowledge about it. And then one of my students brought it up and asked me about it. And then I did what I always do, which is go to the texts, go to books I love, and um, and create classes. And, I'll, and I will talk about that in answer to the question. But I was curious, like, what, where, and how, and if you've stumbled upon thesis, synthesis, synthesis. Um... Well, I think in a nutshell, it is anytime you have, you know, people make overly complicated theories for all kinds of things. And I think that if you were to look at story in its simplest form, the protagonist is thesis, the antagonist is antithesis, and the fact that the antagonist helps the protagonist grow and complicate who they are is the synthesis of these ideas. And so I think... Um, so the protagonist synthesizes the antithetical pro antagonist. Right. right. So, you know, so there's places where brain. it's really good to be Darth Vader, right? Sometimes... Um, I am your father, Luke. That's a giveaway. Spoiler, Spoiler alert. alert. <laughs> um, but not as bad as 
30 years ago and your sister's friend yelled it at a line. Luke and Leo are brother and sister. That was it. Uh, anyway. <laughs> So the idea really, depending, if you look at Egri, right, Egri has, again, an argument form for playwriting, for storytelling as well. Talk about that. So, well, that's where the premise comes out, and the story either proves or disproves a premise. And in your, in your which I guess is, is from Egri, but it's mm-hmm. your, the way you teach it is um, abstraction, verb, abstraction. Mm-hmm. So love overcomes hate. Right. Um, or so, you know, and I think that you, the more abstract it is in some ways can become powerlessness less defeats arrogance. Right. Something like that. I don't know if I think what I think what I, what I love in how you teach it, and I'm now answering how you teach it before I answer how I teach it, but what I love is how you get people to write a premise. And um, and I do think it's important that you believe your premise, even if you want to. No, absolutely. Right, that, that you yes. are passionate about your premise, because if you're going to start with abstraction, in a way, you're pulling abstractions out of things you're you're wrestling with in the world, right? So you're not you're not never just starting with pure abstraction. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of abstracting what you're what matters to you. You write this you write this abstraction verb abstraction statement, and then you dig into that for story and character. Right. And in some ways that becomes a filter through which you can simplify the necessarily simplify characters and, and events into right. a story. But if you were to look at the thesis antithesis, so let's let's make up a premise right now. Okay. So powerlessness let's overcomes do... hate. That's what you said, right? Yeah. So what you might actually do if you wanted to take Wait, that. I didn't say that. That's a combination of the two, but that's fine. Powerlessness overcomes hate. That's interesting. Powerlessness overcomes hate. Well, you know, the thing that actually comes to me then is sort of nonviolent um, mm-hmm. action. Act- activism. Or- yeah. Right. So that's one of the things is like we teach it as a way to sort of brainstorm right. story ideas. Right. So you can develop ideas uh, out of there. But the other thing that it does, if you were to look at this thesis antithesis idea, is that in that case, powerlessness might be either the thesis or the antithesis. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but how one engages with it. Right. Well, because if, it, if it's going to overcome hate, then very often you, you're starting with hate, right? Mm-hmm. In, in that, like in a story where powerlessness overcomes hate, um, you're starting with hate. With right. Hate, so so then hate how. might be the thesis and, you know, love might be the antithesis, right? But what's actually the synthesis <laughs> is, is a form of powerlessness, which is, the, you know what I mean? So that it's not like as we, simple. We probably, I think, come to a, want a different word there. I think probably. But just that idea that you have, you're exploring an idea. And, and, and again, these come out of early 20th century thinking. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now is, and if you're going to go to Marxism, 19th century thinking. Um so those things are about complicating good and bad in a particular way or, or overly simple uh, things. And, and so that's why it's very satisfying when we see our, you know, our hero uh, take on an aspect of the bad guy in a way that is used for good. Mm. Those kinds of things are 
because we really want satisfying. because we because we are complicated and we want complicated heroes and we want to understand how to live as as complicated beings in a complicated world but yeah. we want it simple <laughs> but you know it's never i think it it moves you away from absolutes in a, in a way which is funny because it sounds the abstractions can sound absolutist in a way, right? That might be an objection to them. Right. I just want to say a lot of angels are getting their wings in our house right now. Um, <laughs> ding, ding. Okay. So how I so how I teach it is I go, I go. Oh, that's a fun idea. Let's think about it. And then I look at and I looked at I looked at Sarah Manguso's three hundred arguments first because they're these sort of little aphoristic statements. And what I found, I just leafed through a lot of different things mm-hmm. and what I found with those is that she very often kind of uses a thesis and antithesis and juxtaposes them and then the reader sort of sits there syn- synthesizing them mm-hmm. or trying to synthesize them some of them go a little further and suggest some kind of synthesis so we played with aphorism that was one thing we did in one class and um, with with hers specifically and with this kind of wonderful playful juxtaposition of um you know of a sort of thesis and an antithesis Mm -hmm. and just things that make you go hmm then the other thing I found leafing around in stories um, is dialogue is just it's brilliant to use thesis antithesis and sometimes synthesis in dialogue right so that people are in conflict with each other and that they're arguing and not always directly to each other. They're not synthesizing, right? They're often, in fact, encountering a, the impossibility of synthesis. Mm-hmm. And one is holding one position and the other is holding an antithetical position. And one of the really important things that came up in class was, or that I made sure to bring out, is that there's never just one opposite to any idea or abstraction. Well, certainly not for you. <laughs> I contain multitudes. You do. But I mean, you know, I think the whole thing of, you know, the opposite of of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference, right? This was the thing that we all went dancing around singing in high school, in my semester of performing arts high school. And we were very excited by that idea. But I think that's important, right? That, the, that there isn't one. Because I think there's always the creative side that pushes against any formula even as Mm -hmm. sometimes we're scrambling for some kind of structure to hang all our wild winds on right then then someone says well here's a structure and we go no so well you know and i think it's just another way of looking at the shape of stories right because we, you know, it might be that there's an action and a reaction and a complication. Might be that there's a, um, you know, so there's just a lot of different, like, threes that we use. We use right. three over and over and over again. So so it might be one, two, three, or it might be, you know, uh, I really like, you know, Pilar Alessandra, I talk about her all the time, but she has that great way of saying goal, action, complication, right? So um, the complication might be the synthesis you achieve the goal and here's this other piece right um or you don't achieve the goal and here's this other piece and so i think i want to call this episode waltzing yes one two three one two three um yeah well and just to say my final class because i did three interestingly Mm um is is actually I'm looking at Sing, Unburied Sing, and I'm looking at three scenes um, mm. from the beginning, middle, and, and toward the end um, about death. Mm. And interestingly, you know, and there's 
I, th- I guess they're vaguely spoilers here, but it's not really the kind of book where you're you know something about it, and therefore it just doesn't ring work anymore. It's not worth no, reading. yeah, no not more. Yeah, it's like so chewy and amazing. Um, so. So, you know, but in the very first scene, he's following his grandfather out to slaughter a pig or something. Mm-hmm. And um, he's trying, so he's just, it's his 13th birthday, and he's trying so hard to be grown and to be like his grandfather and to walk like him and to not get sick, basically. And he ends up, like, having to run out and, like, throw up outside mm-hmm. <laughs> watching this, this slaughter. And... Um, so that's like the opening scene and then you know through in the middle there's sort of his little sister kind of almost dies and he ends up having to like kind of save her with some some sort of physically grotesque you know like making her throw up kinds of things that that really play interest like they're really antithetical to his squeamishness right Mm -hmm. and then there's and then toward the end there are like ghosts and things I mean he's sort of living he is actually can he can see the dead and stuff I mean so he just comes to have this very different relationship to death Mm -hmm. um and I mean it's an amazing you know book it just won another or won the National Book Award and then it just won the indie something anyway so um, so that's a, another way I'm teaching it and um, the other thing you brought up earlier not on the podcast um, but that I, th- I wanted to mention that I talked about and maybe you have some things to say about it is I said to people you know it's great for permission when you're drafting like permission to go big to go opposite to let conflict really arise to not have things you know some to, to kind of not worry about resolution but let there be these kind of ir- irresolvable things um, but that what, then it's also great for revision because you can see what you've set up and, and maybe push the opposites or push the conflict to the surface. So I just wanted to mention that because you were saying some kind of interesting things about the difference between what we, when we think about um, drafting versus revision. I don't know if we want to save that for another podcast, but no, I think it's a, um, it's really important. Like you, you, you have these sayings, like all writing is revision, right? And things writing like that. Writing is rewriting. Read it, writing is rewriting. And, I think the more you write, the more you come to understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we still have these really high expectations of our first drafts, which get more and more ridiculous the kind of longer you've been writing in a certain way. There are ways in which your first drafts might actually be better than your first drafts were 20 years ago, but you also know how much more there is to do and could be done um, for a given thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just interesting to me. I think there's uh, that piece about really making sure that the work falls into the right time. So, you know, it is absolutely true that in drafting you can do these things and you may occasionally come up with these like amazing gems but I think for the most part we do everything in revision and if you feel like um, you know I hear stories like Kurt Vonnegut like would write one page and then it would be done and that was the end of his page like edit it and edit it and then leave it behind well in the typewriter so he would like not finish uh, it was this you know who knows if this is even true but it was like something I remember this visual of him in front of a typewriter and it was like he just wrote and then he just like thought everything he could and then wrote the mm. next you know so it was very in in that first pass mm. but I think that um 
for most people, uh, it's you don't even know what you're saying or what you're interesting in or what the antithesis of what you're saying is because you don't even know what you're saying. So how can you emphasize that antithesis and how can you find the value of both perspectives and bring that together at the end if you aren't really sure what either of the other com- conflict positions are? <laughs> so Right. I think what's interesting about the way you teach outlining is that you're you're doing it in a loose brainstormy way, mm-hmm. and so that in some ways it's just another way of trying to f- figure out what you might think. But there's always when you start writing scene things that are going to surprise you, right? But and that's the beauty of story is that it's much more nuanced than a sing- any singular idea can be. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you know we're we head to the that part of the conversation where we discuss sort of the stealing this section. The thing that I find to be really true is that if I don't give myself the opportunity to be immersed in something that is not my day-to-day, it is incredibly difficult for me to generate ideas. So, you know... Um, Wait, say that again. Julia Cameron has her artist dates, right? And I find that I'm very satisfied in a lot of ways with the busyness of of my day-to-day life. There's a lot that's really satisfying. But it is not the kind of thing that pushes me past my day-to-day thinking. And Mm. so it's very hard for me to generate ideas that I'm interested in to explore to fail with but to dig into unless I'm actively feeding sort of myself around those different pieces and so um, okay here's a thesis into this this question about that okay do you find that it feeds you to have things that uh, are align with your thinking or things that challenge your thinking more you know, another challenge. Term. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's also just an interesting political moment where there's this sort of these sort of antithetical things coming out of the politic. <laughs> anyway, out of the anus of Washington. <laughs> just trying to figure out, uh, you know, how we struggle with oppositional ideas, and there are some that I have been resisting any willingness to create any kind of synthesis with? Well, you know what I thought Ted Olson did sort of brilliantly and he was the litigator for uh, same-sex marriage in the Supreme Court. And what he Conservative did, one? Yes. He had, he had been um, Bush's. Bush's Supreme Court Person, lawyer. Rep, lawyer for the for, for the, the hanging Chad <laughs> bullshit. Um, anyway, so he's not someone who generally stands that I would identify as being someone I stand in alignment with. Right. But what he was able to do is look at the desire to create a family, the desire to be a unit, the desire to create to take stability. the conservatism. Right. And so very... he really, I mean, that was really where he was coming from. And his, his argument was that our country, our states, our cities are all better when we have strong nuclear families. <laughs> and by preventing people access 
we are actually undermining the conservative values of that kind of civic commitment. And so now we see the, how uncomfortable this can be. <laughs> so, you know, and so that's like a great example of someone who would normally sit outside. And this idea, like for me, as someone who has not always had the, the privilege to be someone who could get married and do all of that stuff. Um, oh, technically, I could always have gotten married. Yes, just not to whomever you want. Um, but to see, I. You know, there's that piece of um, going again to that, if we unfold it, unfold it, unfold it. You know, at the same time, as we get these rights, we continue to see the value of the cultures we create when those rights weren't available, right? And the communities that we're part of and the how that continues to push the rest of the, the culture in new and interesting ways. So it's, um, you know, how do we preserve both human dignity and the very specific uh, values that come out of people being denied that? Because honestly, that's so, uh, so deep, man. That's deep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And that would be like an ideal synthesis. It's like the Canadian um, conversations we've had with our friends right recently about how in the U.S. we're a melting pot and how in Canada they're a salad. They're a salad. And so each thing keeps its distinctive. The U.S. are like a fondue with like stuff floating. Yes. <laughs> right. So. But they get, they're right. That you get to keep your distinctive character your, the, and, your, and, and be crunchy and healthy. Right. <laughs> I want to say one last thing before we move to steal this about thesis into thesis synthesis, and this again would be something worth a whole podcast. But I also think it's really exciting to think about in terms of character, in terms of um, the inner conflict of a character, which you know uh, you talk about character flaw or limiting belief. Mm -hmm. Lisa Cron talks about it. I forget exactly how. I guess she uses misbelief, but like, and there's sort of the sense of this inner split, and I think. So I just think looking at the the, the thesis and into someone else, someone in my class talked about reading somebody else's book, and I don't know who's where they called it, like the moral blind spot, and that might even have been the title of the book, but like the character's moral blind spot. So like, but whatever it is, like this place where there's internal struggle, mm -hmm. um, a thesis and antithesis, and that are living side by side, and I just think. I have so many personal examples of that, and it feels so exciting to me. It feels like kind of why we turn to story. So I think that that internal thesis antithesis and its struggle for synthesis mm -hmm. um, that is a vital part of character and, a, and and part of what makes a character need a story, need to go right. on a journey. You know, it's interesting because I'm suddenly thinking about the film Little Man Tate, mm -hmm. which I enjoy. And one of the things that it sort of starts out with is Jodie Foster's character at the beginning is, uh, you know, her struggle at the beginning is to come to terms with the fact that where does she fit in her son's life if she's not intellectually his match? Hmm. How do you be that kid's parent? And then you have, I think, the Diane Weist character mm -hmm. who doesn't have isn't a mother but is a teacher 
and can provide for him this thing, right? The intellectual The thing. intellectual stimulation. And so there's this idea in the film uh, that, that are battling each other, right? So is it that a mother a mother's love is what a child needs or is it intellectual stimulation? Of course, at the end... Lo and behold. The synthesis is he has found a community of intellectual peers who come to his birthday party at the end, right? And so he's but he with his... Both. But he needs both. So um, that would be a kind of a super high level look at thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And then you can see how that's going to then thread its way through all the small beats of the story, that tension between the intellectual and the emotional sustenance, right? And you can play that out. On, on, you know, in gesture, you can play it out in uh, plot, in um, prop, in props, yes. in setting, in in human interaction, in dialogue, right? So it's right, gonna... and for that that child, his conflict then is his deep loyalty to his mother, wanting to be loved by her and to give her the love she clearly needs, and to be in the place where he is seen and challenged and and fed in a different way. Um, So it's, you know, it's really, it plays all the way through both the structure, uh, the character drives, and the even the protagonist character arc. Beautiful. All right. It is time for Steal This. Bum, bum, bum. You get to go first. Amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. What have we come across that we'd like to take and make our own? I am listening to Columbine, which is um, a book by David Cullen. Um, and I'm. it's read by Don Leslie. Very well read. Some some of these narrators are great and some are, are not. Less so. It it's, makes a difference. Um, and um, so I'm I'm on, you know, chapter 35 of 54 or whatever, but um, one of the really interesting things, so this is a nonfiction investigation into the whole thing, and he's really looking at um, the way that this myth kind of swelled up and took over the myth that that these were like outcasts the myth that they were gay which they were not that they were you know seeking revenge on these whatever you know on the jocks mm-hmm. that that whole story which wasn't the story at all was columbine the first school it wasn't actually the very first one but it was um but it was like the biggest and it was and it's one that apparently people look at like even the like anyway, I don't want to talk too too overtly about it, but because I don't know who's listening. Although we use all kinds of language, so I guess there's some adult content warning. But um, I guess I just wanted to say that um, <laughs> it's time <laughs> that uh, what I want to take from this is um, you know is that investigation into story that we always have to sort of there's always that kind of um cliched or kind of um knee-jerk reaction there's there's you know we store we're very familiar with certain kinds of tropes and uh, turns and things and and to then look further and one of the things that he said is it took seven years to figure out the motive. And so I haven't actually gotten to the end to kind of... I know, every time we go for a walk, I'm like, 
Why? <laughs> why? What was the why? Right. And I mean, I think it's it's unfolding, but so I don't know if it's going to be some shocking thing, but it's definitely not the story that was set up. And and, we're, and he does definitely explicate why, how that story got set up and how it kind of ran amok. Um, but just for me to, to remember, uh, there's usually something more interesting and less easy going on and for me to dig for that as a writer Mm -hmm. how about you uh well recently i have been watching a lot of (laughs) blackish oh it just went so sad and and at the same time i thought they and that's the thing i want to say is like they've done a wonderful job in this divorce arc um going into the characters you know it didn't feel like suddenly rando people came out of nowhere and it was so uh what i loved actually there wasn't like he had cheated or she had cheated or there had been some specific thing it was this about those cliched stories yeah it was like this the onset of an emotional distance that doesn't have a clear beginning and doesn't have an easy answer um and even though it's a sitcom i think it was really smart in the way that it made that conflict almost like like a ghost or something it was something that they couldn't put their finger on why it was there I, I just and then this, it was just there can i just say this thing i'm just thinking because we we started watching it we were we we were we've been catching up right mm-hmm. so so we were watching and um and obama was president right and we're yeah. watching and it's just it's such a brilliant show i have to say blackish and funny and moving and you know complicated mm-hmm. and um so so i were like watching and we know because we have like we're not just watching week by week that like Trump's going to become elected. We're going to watch this happen in the show, having already lived through it. And and then it happens. And so we, you know, and now we've caught up to the, you know, now we're watching week by week. But it's almost as if that this estrangement between them is has a like a parallel in the political situation. You know what I mean? This kind of like who, like who are we? Do we know each other? Are we connected? Are we Mm. like, are we, are we this marriage? Are we this family? Are we two separate people? You know what I mean? That I think is somewhat of the political feeling of this time in the country. So that just occurred to me as you were talking about it, but I was kind of excited because I think it was a little bit hard for anybody to know like how to deal with this (laughs) turn of events in a sitcom. Yeah. Well, you know, we we have our bunker. I mean, we definitely made some escape plans. So. Oh my gosh! Can I just say, like, we can't even like go camping for the weekend quickly. <laughs> like deal with the apocalypse, but that's well, a that's not podcast. true. That's not true. We had you did really well with the fires. You packed up a little plastic thing of the toiletries and things, which we still have. Yeah. Yeah. And put your water in the back. I did not do as well. I got very philosophical. Yeah. I yeah, that was hard. Yeah. It took me days, like definitely if we'd been in the in different place it all would be gone. Well. But anyway. Um, all right. <laughs> well, on that happy note. <laughs> 
Happy writing. (laughs) We'll see you next week with more reader questions. Bum, bum, bum.